This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to New Books in the American West, a channel on the New Books Network of podcasts. I am Dr. Stephen Hausman. Uh, I'm an assistant professor in the history department at the University of St. Thomas in Minnesota, and I'm your host for our interview today. And I'm speaking today with Alice Bumgartner. Dr. Bumgartner is an assistant professor of history at the University of Southern California and is the author of South to Freedom. Runaway Slaves to Mexico and the Road to the Civil War, which came out with Basic Books in 2020. Thank you so much for coming on the show today, Alice. Thanks so much for having me. Why don't we begin, uh, as we traditionally do on these shows, by on the New Books Network, by just hearing a little bit about you. What's your background and how did you become interested in history? In a very roundabout way, in college, I declared a number of majors that were not history before I finally arrived at the history major, uh, which ranged from English to environmental science. And when I graduated from college, I thought that history was really, really interesting, but that given all of the problems that the world faced, that it, it seemed to me like I wanted to get tools to help in a more direct way. And so I moved to rural Bolivia and took a job at a medical clinic in the southeastern region of Bolivia, thinking that I would become a doctor or decide to work in nonprofit work. But as I was working with patients, many of whom were extremely poor and extremely sick. It would often come up that I had majored in history or was interested in history. And they would tell me stories, family stories, about their experiences during uh, a war that took place in that region in the 1930s with Paraguay, where a third of the male population of fighting age was killed. And those stories really made me realized that actually history was really important, not just interesting, that it really mattered even to people who had ostensibly and practically much greater issues to be dealing with, both with health and finances. And as a result of that, I started to take more seriously the idea of pursuing history as a career. And I went to get a master's degree at the University of Oxford in Latin American Studies. I worked with the really wonderful historian of Mexico, Alan Knight. Uh, that's why I was at the University of Oxford, although the border control people, every time I would, I would fly in, would say, you're doing what in England? Why would you do that? But I got to work with, with Alan and just became really fascinated with the U.S.-Mexico border. Um, so a shift from... Bolivian borders to uh, the U.S.-Mexico border and over the course of that master's program really became convinced that history was something that I really wanted to pursue going forward and then did a Ph.D. at Yale and uh, a couple of postdocs and now I'm at the University of Southern California. It sounds like a story that I've, I've heard kind of from other people recognizing uh, people who get interested in history, recognizing that stories can have great power, that they're that they're they're one of the things that matter in this world are the narratives that we tell ourselves about the past. It sounds like that was your entry point into history as well. Absolutely. And you talked about it a little bit a second ago, but tell us more about the path that you took to the topic of this book, the, the history of enslaved people escaping from slavery into Mexico. It was also a decision that I never would have expected when I started out. I was doing research for my master's thesis at the University of Oxford with Alan Knight, and I was working on a 
different topic. I was really interested in what was happening on the U.S.-Mexico border between 1848, when the border was delineated, and 1880, when Mexico and the United States were able to really exercise more control over the border, more power on the border. So what happened in that um, 32-year period? And in the course of trying to answer that question, I was going to national, state, local archives in Mexico Mexico City and along the primarily the Texas-Mexico border and looking for any document that had anything to do with a violent conflict on the border. And I was really surprised at how many documents I found about enslavers from the United States attempting to kidnap formerly enslaved people who had escaped to Mexico, and that they often were facing resistance, not just from those freedom seekers themselves, but also from Mexican officials and Mexican citizens in Mexico. And that really surprised me for a number of reasons. I had no idea that enslaved people were escaping to Mexico. And it really made me start to think about, well, why were they escaping to Mexico? What was it about Mexico that helped to attract enslaved people to escape there? And I was also, as, as someone who is being trained as a Latin Americanist uh, and a Mexicanist in particular, and uh, you know, I really had not taken that much U.S. history up to this point, but I felt like my wheelhouse was more Mexican history. And I was really surprised to see the, the resistance among Mexican citizens and Mexican officials to these attempted kidnappings. Because in the mid-19th century, Mexico, as, as in many parts of the United States during this time, the federal government didn't really have that much ability to enforce all of its laws. And so the fact that the laws protecting enslaved people were being enforced was really notable to me and and interesting and strange. And so really it was trying to understand those two questions. Why were enslaved people escaping to Mexico and why were Mexican citizens and officials helping them defend themselves against kidnappers? You know, I, I started out just trying to answer those questions, thinking that it might just be a small project, like an article, but it ended up really expanding in ways that I hadn't, I hadn't anticipated. And we can talk about this a little bit later um, as well when we get toward, toward the end of the book and, and questions of historiography a little bit. But, you know, as someone who has a PhD in American history and took a lot of American history undergrad and graduate classes, I was surprised that I did not know this story really at all. It was one of those books where I found myself wondering at every turn, how come this is such an undertold story? So again, we can get into that question maybe a little bit later, but it's really apparent that, that and the way that, that you write it, it, it moves very well. It feels as though you're excited to be writing and kind of telling the story that is so undertold. Well, I, I'm so glad to hear that because I think when I first was hearing, um, reading these documents, I thought that it was because I just hadn't, I hadn't taken enough U.S. history classes. <laughs> and then I went, yeah, I went to, I did my PhD, I got it in U.S. history, like you, and, and, and realized that, no, this actually, this actually wasn't right. something that I had, I just wasn't paying enough attention in those history classes before. Right, right. Um, well, let's get into the book a little bit. And you actually begin the story that you tell here at the end of the story. You, you begin with a history of John Kirkham uh, witnessing really the end of slavery in Texas in 1863. And then you trace the story of Kirkham's family backwards into the past as kind of a window into the history of slavery's creep westward in North America. So can you tell us a little bit about the Kirkhams and about how their story as a family mirrors that of the institution of slavery in the United States itself? Absolutely. The Kirkhams were, in some respects, a representative family in that they had originally come to the United States, settled on the eastern seaboard in, in the south, and then in the early 19th century, moved to the South Central United States, to Louisiana in particular. And they were part of this larger movement, I guess on the earlier end of this larger movement, 
towards the South Central United States. And they were part of this larger effort to transform the indigenous homelands of that area and after it had been transferred from um, France and Louisiana Purchase. To, they were part of that effort to transform those lands into cotton plantations. And what is so remarkable about the Kirkhams, and I'll, I'll get to the later Kirkham later, but uh, there was a man named James Kirkham who was one of the earliest of the Kirkham clan to come to Louisiana. And he had three enslaved people who had escaped along with an enslaved person of one of his neighbors from Western Louisiana. And he went out in the winter of 1819 to try to find these enslaved people. And he had a pretty good guess that, or excuse me, the enslaved people escaped in 1819 and he went in search of them in 1820. And he thought that they were going to what was then the Spanish Viceroyalty of New Spain, and particularly the province of Texas. And on his way to try to find them in Texas, he runs into none other than Moses Austin, the father of Stephen F. Austin, who is himself on his way to Texas to try to convince the Spanish government to give him a land grant that would allow him to bring colonists from the United States to settle into Texas, where they would, as those of us who, uh, who <laughs> took U.S. history classes know, would start a, a colony, the Austin colony, that was primarily rooted in cotton agriculture, slave-based cotton agriculture. And so these two stories... Um, and Andrew Torgett's wonderful book, Seeds of Empire, also starts with this, um, these, these parallel stories of James Kirkham going to Texas to try to recover his enslaved people and Moses Austin going to Texas to at the same time traveling together to try to start a colony. And... It's such a, it's such a, it's one of those things that if you read it in a novel, you wouldn't, it would seem to, it would seem unbelievable that they had been traveling together because it's, it's in many respects, the perfect metaphor for the ways in which the expansion of slavery and the defense of slavery is so intimately tied to the uh, expansion of the United States westward and that that expansion of slavery and the, and the westward expansion, the conquest of territories are really, this is a facile thing to say, but that they are, that ultimately is the root of the sectional controversies that will lead to civil war in 1861. And uh, I'm going to ask you kind of a, a difficult question in that it's very large and we don't have an infinite amount of time. But I'm wondering if you could give a brief history of slavery in the place that would become Mexico, in New Spain and then in Mexico itself. What is the, the history of that nation as it pertains to slavery? What, in what ways does it diverge with the history of slavery in the United States? And in what ways do they follow similar paths up to a certain point? Again, I know that's a very big question to ask, so forgive me. No, no, it's great. I'm going to, you, you're going to have to cut me off if I go on too long. But we, <laughs> we don't often think about Mexico as a place that had a deep experience with slavery and with abolition. But during the colonial period, New Spain, as Mexico was then known, imported more enslaved African African slaves between 1580 and 1640 than any other Spanish colony in the Americas except, or any other colony in the Americas except Brazil. It had a particularly important entanglement with slavery during the colonial period. But for a variety of reasons, slavery begin or black slavery, African slavery declines over the course of the colonial period and historians debate exactly when and why that happened. But by the time that Mexicans take up arms against Spain in 1810, there are really only about 10,000 African descended slaves in 
New Spain. So a pretty small number. And over the course of Mexico's independence movement, which extended from 1810 to 1821, there is a surge of anti-slavery sentiment because Mexico's independence movement is founded on many of the same sort of ideals as the other independence movements in Latin America and the United States. This principle of equality is really important. And in the wake of Mexico's independence in 1821, states in Mexico start to abolish slavery like they do in the northern United States. And they also start to pass gradual emancipation laws, again, like Pennsylvania, Connecticut, Rhode Island. And so at the state level, we're seeing this movement to try to undermine slavery very similar in many respects to what happens in the United States in the wake of the American Revolution. But like the United States, Mexico at the national level does not abolish slavery everywhere. And the reason for that is that although the slave population was small and it was declining, it was concentrated in two particular regions, Mexico's uh, sugar growing south and the cotton growing north. And of course the cotton growing north included the Austin colony and the other colonies like it in Texas, which are really importing more enslaved people to grow cotton. And as a result of the concentration of the enslaved population in these two regions, it's hard for the federal government in Mexico to abolish slavery across the nation without causing a revolt in those two regions. And in fact, when uh, Mexican President Vicente Guerrero, who himself is of African descent, tries to abolish slavery in 1829. There is nearly a revolt in those two regions, and Mexico's Congress overturns his law abolishing slavery uh, two years later. And so attempts to abolish slavery at the national level really founder, flounder. But in contrast to the United States, the Mexican government does try to put slavery on a path to extinction. And it does that in a number of ways. In 1821, it abolishes all distinctions of caste and class, which doesn't get rid of racism by any means, but it means that all official record keeping does not include any information about someone's race. It makes it hard for us historians to trace these populations afterwards, um, but they're, they're trying to live up to that idea of equality. And in 1824, the Mexican government also prohibits the importation of enslaved people from abroad. In some respects, that's similar to the 1808 ban on the slave trade in the United States. But the fact that Mexico has this much smaller slave population means that it has very different consequences. That the ban on the importation of slaves to Mexico means that unless by some miracle those 10,000 enslaved people can um, you know, maintain their population or increase their population uh, through natural reproduction, that there's not going to be a huge increase in the slave population. That's very different than in the United States, where in 1808, there's about a million enslaved people who are able to increase and maintain their population through, through natural reproduction. The other main reason why this ban on the importation of slaves is particularly a threat, excuse me, sorry, <laughs> got a little dog here. That's okay, it happens all the time on these interviews, actually. We've had dogs, so we've had sorry. children. <laughs> um, well, back, back to this ban on the importation of slaves. <laughs> it, that, that law was a threat to those Anglo-American colonists who were trying to move to Texas to establish cotton plantations, which they believed depended on enslaved labor. And they tried a number of different ways to try to circumvent Mexico's laws against the importation of enslaved people. They would import enslaved people as indentured servants, uh, with lifelong indentures. In 1832, the state government of Coahuila y Texas, which the province of Texas was a part, prohibited those contracts, saying that no contract could be longer than 10 years. They continued, the Anglo-American colonists continued to try to import enslaved people anyways. And the Mexican government responded by sending a secret agent in 1834 to Texas to try to inform enslaved people 
that they were free if they had been illegally imported into Mexico. Of course, enslaved people knew about those laws before the secret agent arrived and had been escaping before that to Mexican centers, Mexican judges, where they hoped that they would be able to and, and sometimes did secure their freedom. And so Mexico, while it was not abolishing slavery outright across the nation, it was making an effort to try to bring slavery to an end. And that was troubling to those Anglo-American colonists in Texas, particularly when Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana, who is then Mexico's president, overturned Mexico's federalist constitution in favor of a more centralized system, a system in which the individual states wouldn't be able to have as much control over not just the laws they passed, but the enforcement of national laws. And so slavery really plays an important part in the story of the Texas Revolution, that we often think, oh, the Anglo-American colonists, Anglo-American colonists in Texas revolted because of the shift away from federalism. But as with the rhetoric of states' rights with the Civil War, it's really federal. Why, why was centralism so threatening? Many of those colonists had um, come, to, come to Texas, like Moses Austin, when it was still a Spanish empire. What was, so, what was so threatening about centralism at this particular time was the fact that Mexico had taken the stance that said, we're will respect property that exists, but we want it, we want to phase it out. And so slavery, really important to the Texas Revolution in ways that I'm I'm glad to see are becoming recognized more broadly. And the Texas Revolution in itself also plays a role in Mexico's ultimate abolition of slavery. That Mexico Mexico's Congress passes a law abolishing slavery without exception in Mexico in 1837, a year after the end of the Texas Revolution. And there are a variety of reasons why this policy makes sense at that time. It acts on that longstanding anti-slavery sentiment, the fact that the enslaved population or that Texas has seceded from the Mexican Federation means that um, the enslaved population of Mexico is even even smaller than it was before. Um, so it, it's the risks of abolishing slavery are much less. By abolishing slavery, Mexico is also able to really distinguish itself from the Republic of Texas, which has passed a constitution that guarantees the future of slavery, really limits the ways in which that government can make any inroads against slavery. And so Mexico, by abolishing slavery, is really help, hoping to sort of cast itself in um, or to, to assume, to, to take, as, as Christopher Brown puts it, moral capital, uh, to be able to say, we lost the Texas Revolution, but we are right in the, the eyes of history, in the eyes of morality, because we have abolished slavery. And finally, there is some evidence to suggest that another reason why the policy in favor of abolition was passed at that time was because there had been this long history of enslaved people escaping from the Anglo-American colonies in Texas, joining Mexican lines during the Texas Revolution, for instance. And there were some Mexican politicians who believed that by abolishing slavery, they would encourage enslaved people in tech, the Republic of Texas to either revolt or escape, and that that would undermine the stability of the Republic of Texas during this time when it really needed to prove its independence before the community of nations. And so all of those, I'm sorry, I'm definitely going on for too long, but I hope that gives at least some, some inkling of the trajectory of both slavery and abolition in Mexico from the colonial period to uh, about 1837. It does. I mean, covering several decades worth of history in about, what, five and a half minutes, <laughs> I think is pretty, pretty impressive, no matter, no matter what it's about. Um, and one thing that struck me reading this book, again, as an Americanist myself, was how, you know, you don't 
quite frame the story of slavery in Mexico as a counterpoint to the United States, but it is sort of a, a way of looking at an alternate path, right? If you take a comparative approach between the institution in these two places, that you can see a different route, again, speaking as an Americanist, that the United States may have gone on under a different set of circumstances, right? That, you know, the way that the United States progressed, it was not inevitable. It was contingent. And just look at this other example from, you know, the same continent of how things went instead. That was uh, something that struck me reading this book. Yeah, it really struck me doing the research as well, and it took me a while to really see what I ultimately think was just right in front of me, that in a lot of the scholarship on the sectional controversy in the United States, it almost seems to be taken for granted that there were limited ways that the federal government could try to bring slavery to an end. That any sort of prohibition on slavery, whether it was direct, immediate emancipation or these more gradual emancipation laws, that that would run counter to Fifth Amendment protections of property rights. And there are abolitionists in the United States who are arguing against this in the 19th century, of course. But Mexico's example really shows us that there, and, and Mexico's constitution is different from the United States. It is uh, you know, somewhat informed by the U.S. constitution, but mostly not. So I don't want to equate the two constitutions, but it also has protections of property rights. And it gives us this example of how Actually, there was a way there, that, that a country that respected property rights and that was founded on the principle of liberty and equality could try to bring slavery to an end in a way that did not ostensibly interfere with those property rights. Of course, there are a number of differences between the United States and Mexico, not just their constitutions. The right. <laughs> that, that the United States had such a, a, a such a larger enslaved population certainly played an enormous role about w- whether those more gradual emancipation policies would would have worked. But it, I think, it helps. I I'm so fascinated by comparative history and think it's such a such a useful way for thinking about national histories, even even in histories that aren't explicitly comparative. And it really, I think, helps us to, to see, as you're saying, those alternate paths that, that perhaps could have taken. I mean, what, what would have happened if in the late, uh, getting into counterfactuals here, but in, if in the, in the late um, 18th century, if, if before the, the Cotton Revolution really got going, what if the federal government had, as Jefferson suggested, prohibited slavery in the territories, how different how different are, or, or you know, d- promised freedom to the children born of enslaved people, uh, how different U.S. history would have looked in those, in, if those more gradual emancipation laws had been enacted. So within a decade of the Texas uh, Revolution, um, as, as my friend Tommy Richards puts it, the Texas moment uh, occurs, <laughs> um, the Mexican-American War breaks out. And as you say in, in the book, uh, that this war was, among other things, it was about slavery. And more specifically, my question, if I can frame this as a question, I guess, my question is how were enslaved people escaping to Mexico a crucial part, a crucial kind of waypoint on the path that led to that conflict? Oh, that's a that's a very good question and a, a complicated answer where the immediate cause of the U.S. war with Mexico is the debate over, or the prelude to the war is the debate over whether or not to annex the Republic of Texas. And slavery is the bone of contention over annexation. And the reason that, well, one of the reasons that annexation becomes something that the United States decides to do in a, it, with much resistance and contestation is the idea that England is trying to 
convince Texas to abolish slavery. They're, they're saying that they will assume, the rumor goes that the English government, is, the British government is trying to offer to the Republic of Texas to assume their enormous and ballooning debt in exchange for emancipation. And I went to the archives in England to try to really see who was, like, where was, was the British government actually doing this? There were British abolitionists, British activists who thought this was a great idea and who were proposing it. But the British government, as from everything that I saw in the evidence, was not trying to convince Texas to abolish slavery. The British government's number one concern was trying to make sure that Texas remained independent rather than joining the United States. And British diplomats were instructed not to make slavery an issue because there was a fear that by pressuring the Republic of Texas to abolish slavery, that that would drive Texas into the hands of the United States. So that rumor, which had such huge consequences, really wasn't true. And the only country that seemed to be actively trying to abolish slavery and undermine slavery in Texas was Mexico, which uh, refused to negotiate with Texas over its independence so long as it continued to accept slavery. Mexican government continued to send secret agents to Texas to try to you know, convince enslaved people to escape and uh, that they had a claim to freedom. And so, but, but you know, the fact that Mexico was doing this really wasn't quite as, uh, it wasn't a cause for war because Mexico didn't recognize the independence of Texas. It had, according to international law, every right to try to recover the Republic of Texas. Uh, but if England was doing that, that was a violation of the Monroe Doctrine. And um, as, as Jay Sexton shows so well in his book on the Monroe Doctrine, the annexation debates over the Republic of Texas really resuscitate the Monroe Doctrine as an attempt to try to defend American, uh, you know, the, 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 the no interference from abroad in the Americas. Uh, so slavery is playing a huge role in the lead up to the war and these debates over the annexation of Texas. And then of course the war itself, James K. Polk, who is the president at the time of the war makes very clear that he intends to pay for the war or rather make Mexico pay for the war, sound familiar, by, by trying to, uh, by, by, by conquering Mexican territories, that the, the money to be made from the, that territorial acquisition would pay for the war. Um, and that, of course, immediately raised the question of the status of slavery in those territories. Those territories obviously were occupying the same latitude as the southern states. There was an assumption that maybe you know, th the 3630 dividing line would continue west to the Pacific, the problem was that Mexico had abolished slavery. It was the first territorial acquisition in U.S. history of territory where slavery had been explicitly abolished by law, and that posed problems, particularly for Northern politicians, both Whigs and Democrats, about whether Congress actually had the right to reestablish slavery where it had been previously abolished. And Northern Democrats and Northern Whigs pretty quickly arrived at the conclusion that no, the, Cong the Constitution did not empower Congress to reestablish slavery. And that, I think, helps to explain why it is that the Mexican-American War is so controversial and is, as um, Eric Foner and other historians have suggested, really one of the key turning points in accelerating sectional controversy that, that ultimately leads to the Civil War. 
so far uh, on in our conversation, we've mostly taken a, kind of a top-down approach, talking about international politics and and ideals about uh, what what slavery means in different political contexts. So we haven't talked all that much about the people themselves who are ostensibly at the center of this story. So I'm curious if you could talk a bit about the experience of enslaved people escaping to Mexico. When did they begin escaping south from the United States into Mexico? How many did so? What were their experiences like? And I guess to kind of tile these together into a broader question, to what extent did Mexico itself embrace this role as an anti-slavery republic? Is that name even sort of a fair label to put on it? Well, thank you for that question, because it enslaved people are so central to this story. And they had been escaping to what is now Mexico for, for decades, even before my book starts. And there's really interesting work being done by Maria Esther Hamak and um, Cristina Villarreal, who's looking at the story a little bit earlier um, to really trace those escapes of enslaved people during uh, to, to New Spain during the colonial period. So keep an eye out for their books because uh, there's a lot of exciting stuff that's, that's gonna be coming out in the next couple of years about this. So there is a long history of enslaved people escaping to uh, New Spain, starting in, I, I hesitate to say when it started, um, they would probably be able to answer that more, but you know, 18th century, and would be my my best guess, but perhaps earlier. And um, how many enslaved people escaped? This is a, a a question that I think we will never be able to answer with absolute certainty. I think that, especially after talking with a lot of different people who are working on this topic, it seems like the range that uh, on, on the lower end, maybe around 3,000, on the upper end, about 10,000 escaping between, um, say, 1821 and 1861. So a pretty big range of what, how, how many people escaped, and part of that is just the very difficult issues of evidence, um, which I'm happy to talk more about but I don't want to get too far in the weeds. And that, that is significantly smaller than the number of enslaved people who escaped to Canada uh, on the more, more famous Underground Railroad. So it is, it is significantly smaller. But I think that the, the consequences and significance of these escapes really are greater than any number could suggest. And of course, it was greater, it had great significance for the people whose lives it shaped. And I would love to, to take this opportunity to maybe just share one of the stories of um, the enslaved people who I came across in the archives. Yes, one of please many. do. Yeah. Yes. So in, um, in 1850, a man named Manuel Luis del Fiero who lived in Reynosa, Tamaulipas, which is um, sort of the most northeastern of Mexico's states, uh, woke up in the middle of the night to the sound of a woman screaming. And he pretty, immediate, he pretty quickly identified that voice as that of his uh, employee, his, uh, his, sort of the, the woman who worked in his household. Um, Matilde Genes, who he later testified had been held as a, a slave in the United States. And he uh, immediately rushed towards the sound and found Matilde Genes being threatened by two U.S. citizens uh, with a gun. And what's really interesting about Matilde Genes is that she was uh, belonged to a, a man named William Cheney, who lived in Cheneyville, Louisiana, about 150 miles away from New Orleans. And <laughs> the wonderful, the, the fact that she lived there is important because it's not far from where Solomon Northrup spent or was sold into slavery. And he wrote 
on arriving in this nearby plantation that everyone was talking about Mexico and the promise of freedom in Mexico. And it gives us some sense that perhaps Matilde Henes had also heard what Solomon Northrup did, that there was a promise of freedom in Mexico. And somehow, and we don't know exactly how or when she managed to escape from Cheneyville, Louisiana to Reynosa, Tamaulipas. I, I still, I, I, wish, I wish I knew how she did it because it really is just, it's just amazing um, to think about whether, whether Cheney had taken her closer into Texas and she escaped from there or, or what was, we, we don't know, but it's really um, an incredible escape. And she was able to find work in the household of Del Fiero. And, and she was like many enslaved people in that respect who uh, were able to find work in, in Mexico after escaping there. And Del Fiero does not take kindly to these two Americans coming in and trying to kidnap Matilde. He grabs his gun and threatens to shoot the two men unless they let her go. And one of the men escapes, but the other is actually arrested by the authorities in Reynosa. And he turns out to be none other than William Cheney, Matilda Hennessy's enslaver. And he is thrown into jail while the district judge begins an investigation into his kidnapping. Unfortunately, there's the the record trail runs dry at that point. So we don't know if he escaped from jail, like many people in the 19th century escaping from these sort of flimsy jails or whether he was able, he was um, actually prosecuted for what he had done. But we know he was in the jail for at least a month, which is pretty amazing that someone who had come from the United States where in many cases, enslavers were given the right to treat enslaved people with impunity and comes to Mexico and finds that that is not the case. And that leads me to the question of, was Mexico actually an anti-slavery republic? One of the problems with calling it an anti-slavery republic is that <laughs> the, the republic part where Mexico after 1821, it starts out as an empire. Uh, it then becomes a federal republic. It shifts back to centralism. There are, a lot of, there are a lot of changes in the political system of Mexico that maybe republic might not be the best, the best word. But is it, is it an, whatever, you know, is it an anti-slavery government? Is it committed to anti-slavery? And I think that it's really important to emphasize that for some people in Mexico and for some politicians in Mexico, anti-slavery was a mercenary self-interested proposition. Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana is a great example of a Mexican politician who would sometimes talk the talk of anti-slavery and who would implement policies that were anti-slavery leaning. For instance, during the Texas Revolution, he issued an order that promised freedom to all enslaved people who escaped to Mexican lines. At the same time, he was selling enslaved, or excuse me, indigenous people into slavery in Cuba. So there is some, some uh, hypocrisy going on there that might make us skeptical of how committed these anti-slavery uh, policies or politicians were. At the same time, um, the fact that there are people like Luis, Manuel Luis del Fiero, who is, you know, in some respects risking his life to help defend Matilde Hennes, that's pretty remarkable. I mean, it's the thing that originally made me really fascinated by this topic. And in fact, those, those documents were the first ones that I came across in the archives. So they have a, they have a special place in my, in my, um, in this, in this story of this, of this book. Um, is Del Fiero defending Matilde Hennes for anti-slavery reasons? We don't really know, but probably not. 
probably he's helping her because she has she's she's his employee she is a part of his you know maybe not his family but um she's a part of his his community and perhaps he's defending her for those reasons and so you know is it is it anti-slavery is it not i guess I, his motives interest me less than the fact that he and, and so many others were willing to help defend these freedom seekers in Mexico in much the same way that Northern abolitionists, both uh, of African descent and not, were willing to help freedom seekers in the North. Some of those abolitionists I, were acting for anti-slavery sentiment and others were acting for other motives. Um, so anyways, I, I don't want to go on too long about <laughs> whether, whether anti-slavery republic, um, or not, cause I could go on forever about it. I think it's a really interesting <laughs> question, but, but I hope that that gives some, some answer to that great question. It does. And, you know, it's, I think that what you said was spot on that, you know, the, the motives only matter so much because it's, it's the actions that really are, are what are powerful here. And the motives are interesting to think about, but ultimately, ultimately, relatively unknowable and we know what these people did and that's that's what really moves the needle in history a little bit yeah along these same lines this is something you touched on a bit in the last story you were telling but what happens to people when they do when they are able to escape to mexico these these thousands of formerly enslaved people who are running away are they able to become citizens you mentioned that they're able to find work in some instances what what happens upon arrival there are two routes that seem to be most commonly taken by freedom seekers in Mexico. The first is to do what Metodejanes do, which is to join or to, to escape to, uh, say, a city like Reynosa. There are cities in northeastern Mexico that actually have sort of thriving popular communities of people of African descent hailing from the British Caribbean, the United States, and uh, elsewhere. And, and so some enslaved people find work and they integrate, they seem to integrate into the communities where they are working pretty well, that, or they seem to be integrating into those communities. They learn Spanish, they often adopt Spanish names and they are experiencing, um, I, I want to be clear that, that they're the, the freedom, quote unquote, that all freedom seekers in Mexico are, in, are forging for themselves is, and this is the true, I think, in most post-emancipation societies, that it is not perfect. And those enslaved people who find work in Mexico are working in a cash poor economy that does often rely on different forms of payment that can lend itself to coercive labor practices. So indentured servitude, debt peonage, those are all systems that are in place in Mexico. Mexico is an incredibly diverse country. The way that those labor systems work very tremendously across regions and there's ev there's conflicting evidence about how co how coercive debt peonage and indentured servitude is in northeastern mexico which i will i will spare you from going through that but suffice it to say that the enslaved people who find work in mexico and integrate into mexican communities they do often receive you know, if, if a kidnapper is trying to kidnap them, we often, or I should say, there, there is evidence that their neighbors, their employers will help to defend them against, or help them to defend themselves against kidnappers. But this particular uh, escape route does come with certain costs and consequences. The second route that many freedom seekers take. And this route is, is much clearer and much easier to reconstruct because those freedom seekers actually join a military colony, part of a series of forts that the Mexican government uh, constructed a, along its northern frontier in an attempt to help defend it. 
they joined this one military colony in particular where the Seminole Indians and Black Seminole settled in 1850. Um, in 1850, Seminole Indians and Black Seminole left, or a portion of them left Indian territory uh, and, came, and came to Mexico. And that colony becomes a magnet of sorts for freedom seekers from Texas. The population of uh, people of African descent in that colony really explodes in the years after, um, after the, the colony is established with uh, Black Seminole and Seminole Indians. And we have really pretty good records from that military colony, which is one of the reasons why it's, it's, it's easier to speak with certainty about, about what their experiences are like. The Mexican government promised both land and citizenship to anyone who would come to Mexico and take up arms through these military colonies. And we have some suggestion that enslaved people and people of African descent were actually getting both land and citizenship under the terms of these laws. Some of them were simply exercising the, we, we have evidence that they were exercising the rights of citizenship, that they were serving as justices of the peace, for instance, which was a position that was really reserved for citizens. Um, and we also have some evidence of um, enslaved people and people of African descent who had joined Mexico's military, not, not necessarily even within those military colonies, who formally petitioned for their citizenship to the president of Mexico. And we have some, some evidence, some a, a paper trail of sorts that documents that application being approved. So we have evidence to suggest that that citizenship, those citizenship rights were in fact extended to people of African descent from the United States who had come to Mexico, which is really just an astonishing, uh, it's an astonishing thing to see, thinking back to that comparison with the United States, particularly given that in 1857, we have the U.S. Supreme Court stating that in the Dred Scott decision that African-Americans, whether free or enslaved, do not count as U.S. citizens. The Mexican government is taking a very different approach to that question at a very similar point in time. And you end the book with, of course, the American Civil War. And I'm curious what role Mexico plays in the Civil War, or maybe maybe a better question is, how do the how does this story of the United States and Mexico eyeing each other in very different ways over this question of slavery, how does this end in the Civil War or how does it change in the Civil War? Because as you describe in the book, while the United States is undergoing this catastrophic uh, political crisis uh, in the 1860s, Mexico has its own major political crisis during the same decade. So could you tell me a little bit about, again, these kind of comparative histories? Yeah, absolutely. Mexico plays, I think, a really important role in understanding the coming of the Civil War, which might sound surprising because there's really nothing more national than a civil war. But Mexico's role is twofold. The first is that you know, historians have recognized how the threat of or the promise of freedom in the northern states and Canada and Haiti created fear among Southern enslavers about being encircled by abolitionists. That the, even though the number of enslaved people, Eric Foner estimates, or that it was less than one half of 1% of enslaved people who escaped to the Northern States and Canada, but even that alone was enough to help to convince Southern whites that their interests would best be protected outside of the union and that they needed to take extreme measures in order to protect the institution of slavery. And Mexico, by promising freedom and citizenship and land to enslaved people, that that's adding to the sense of threat, the sense of menace from not just the North from the Northern States and Canada, but also from the South and West. And that's very threatening and uh, 
that that's part of the calculus that Southern whites are making when debating what to do after Lincoln's election, whether or not to secede. The other reason that Mexico is important, and particularly Mexican abolition is important to the coming of the Civil War, has to do with, as I mentioned earlier, the the U.S. war with Mexico. So many books about the Civil War, uh, Jim McPherson's Battle Cry of Freedom, for instance, begin with the Mexican-American War. But I always just, I, I remember this in high school when I was taking U.S. history, just wondering why it was that the Mexican-American War was so controversial when all the United States had been expanding westward for decades. And, and of course, that expansion, there was the Missouri Compromise debate. So there was some controversy going as, as the United States expanded westward. But why was it that the Mexican-American War was, was the one that really made things uh, accelerate in the 1850s to the extent where there was no way forward except civil war? And I really think the reason for that is that, or to me, it makes much more sense once we take into account that Mexico had abolished slavery and that that meant that it was very hard politically to continue dividing those Western territories sort of in half between slaveholding and non-slaveholding states, that Northerners of all political persuasions were really opposed to reestablishing slavery where it had been previously abolished by Mexico. They were, you know, they were like, Mexico, of all places, they abolished slavery before us. But they, they didn't want to reverse that. And Southern politicians had only to look at a map to see what the consequences of that would be. If the American, what would become the American Southwest was close to slavery, this balance of power between the North and South in Congress would tilt almost irrevocably in favor of the non-slaveholding states. And Southern politicians in the 1850s are really trying to avert that loss of power that the U.S. war with Mexico seems to put into place. They're trying to annex Cuba. They overturn the 3630 line with the Kansas-Nebraska Act. They try to make Kansas into a slave state. Uh, they try to build a railroad that would connect the southern states with the American Southwest in hopes that perhaps they could convince those states to be favorable to slavery. And all of those events, to me, just make much more sense when we think about it in terms of the fact that Mexico had abolished slavery and that created a new set of challenges for the expansion of slavery westward. So those, I, I've, in, in short, I would say those are, the <laughs> those are the reasons why I think we need to take Mexico into account and the escape of enslaved people to Mexico when we're talking about even this most national of American events, the U.S. Civil War. I, I think your book does a really good job of showing how that is the case. But in the epilogue, you discuss how this story has gone mostly overlooked by historians, particularly the story of enslaved people traveling south to freedom, about how this is a bit of a blind spot in the very deep, very long, very rich historiography of the coming of the Civil War. And I have to ask, why is this? Why do you think this is the case that historians have not seen this story or have seen it and decided not to write about it? And, you know, just as, as kind of a corollary, why, and you kind of answered this earlier, but how did you come to, what documents did you see? What, what was it in the archive that really stood out to you that made you say, well, I then, I need to be the one to write about this because no one else has done so yet and someone has to do it. <laughs> I think that a lot of the reason that we haven't had, that, that we haven't paid that much attention to this before is the fact that if you go to the archives in Texas, which if you're a U.S. historian, studying the U.S.-Mexico border, that often is a place where people start. If you go to the archives in Texas, the documents that you find are very disparaging of the promise of freedom in Mexico. That Texas newspapers will publish letters and editorials talking about how enslaved people 
who escaped to Mexico are returning to Texas because they were subjected to worse conditions in Mexico. And I think that when looking at those archives, if you start with that, it's, it's easy to think that, okay, there were some enslaved people who were escaping to Texas, to, to Mexico, but it wasn't great there. And so the numbers really weren't that high. And I really think the reason that I decided to pursue this, contrary to much advice, uh, well-meaning advice um, from, from other scholars, was that I started in Mexican archives. And so when people told me, oh, you're not going to find any evidence, and there's, this is just a dead end, there's not enough, there are not enough enslaved people who escaped, I actually already had this sense that there was evidence. It was just in Mexico. It was in a place that we don't usually start, or that U.S. historians, we do research there, but we don't necessarily always start in Mexico. So I think that's one of the reasons why um, I, I <laughs> maybe did the, made the foolhardy decision to pursue this topic um, when, when other historians um, sort of decided that it, or decided not to. The other reason that I think this history has been forgotten is that for all of the work that has been done showing the importance of Mexicans and Mexican-Americans to history, and you know, we're just wrapping up um, Latinx Heritage Month, which is dedicated to showing the importance of people of Hispanic descent in the United States, that there is nonetheless a dismissal of the Mexican government and Mexican policies that perhaps because of the news we get about Mexico, which is primarily about Mexico's poverty, its corruption, its violence, I think it's hard for us to think that while those things are true, that Mexico has suffered from political upheaval from the 19th century onwards, that nonetheless Mexico could, Mexico's government, Mexico's policies could have contributed in really important ways to these larger debates about freedom and slavery. I think that, that that's something that goes against our longstanding assumptions about the Mexican government. And finally, the last reason is that as the wonderful Mexican historian Enrique Krause has argued, the United States has grappled or is beginning to grapple with two of its three original sins, the sin of slavery and the sin of indigenous forced, uh, you know, quote unquote, removal. But that it hasn't really grappled with the third of its original sins, which was the unjust war with Mexico. And the conquest of those territories. And I think that that's, that's true. That, and that might be another reason why we're not seeing as much scholarship as you might have thought about this particular issue. So those, those are the three, the three reasons I think that we, we um, are not see, we haven't seen as much about this particular history before. But uh, there's, as I mentioned earlier, there are a number of really exciting studies that are in the works and coming out soon. And so I think, I think we're going to, there's going to be a lot, a lot more coming that is going to really amplify and deepen our understanding of this history. I'm not familiar with that, with that Krause uh, three original sins um, framing and thinking about the Mexican-American war or the American conquest of northern Mexico, we might say, in that way is, is kind of getting my brain going a little bit. That's interesting because this is an, uh, an event that, you know, it shows how interconnected those other two, as he puts it, sins really are. That it, it, it wraps up all three of these in one particular event. So that's something I'll have to be looking up after this interview is over with, because that, that sounds very interesting to me. 
I'm curious, what is, and this is a question that I always like to ask at the end of the interview, and sometimes it gives my guests a little bit of consternation because it's not an easy question to answer, but thinking about your book in, in summary, what is one takeaway that you hope readers, if they think about your book, if you know, a year, five years after they read it, what is the one thing that you hope they come away from your book understanding? What's the big takeaway, do you, do you think? Ooh, the big takeaway... I'll, I'll answer that by telling a story from my research trip that on, on research in Mexico, that one of the early trips that I took, I was on the subway in Mexico City and another writer, this older gentleman asked me where I was from. And I said that I was an American and he gestured at everyone in the, in the subway car and said, we're all Americans. And it was something that I really took to heart this idea that although people from the United States call themselves Americans, that everyone in the Americas outside of the United States also calls themselves Americans. And that actually, I think, is a metaphor for what I was trying to show in this book, which is that U.S. history is American history, that we really cannot understand our own nation's civil war without looking to Mexico and without taking into account the really pivotal role that enslaved people played in both countries. So I think that that would be <laughs> my best, my best, uh, my best attempt at the, the larger takeaway that U.S. history is American history. I think I think that that shines through in, in the book. I, re- I really do. Um... And then finally, my last question is, I always like to get a preview from my guests about what they've been working on since their most recent book comes out. This book has been out for like a year and a half-ish now, I believe. So what have you been working on in the interim? What's what's coming down the pike next for you? Oh, I mean, I have been, I'm an archive rat and I have been suffering in the pandemic of not being able to work in the archives. And so I'm still really casting around for what, what the next project is, is going to be and done a couple of little, little articles and side projects, but, but not sure, not sure what the, the next project is going to be. I think that we, we all feel similar to you in that, in that regard. So it's a, it's, it's a feeling I know, I know very well. I have a, <laughs> a, a, a fellowship myself that I've put off for something like two years now because of the pandemic that oh. I'm just itching to, to actually, you know, enjoy finally, hopefully uh, this coming year. So I feel you on that, Alice. I really do. Yeah. yeah. Well, fingers crossed you'll be able to get that, get that fellowship going or use that fellowship and hopefully we'll all get to go back to the archives soon. Yes. Fingers crossed for you too. Dr. Alice Baumgartner is an assistant professor of history at the University of Southern California, and her new book is South to Freedom, Runaway Slaves to Mexico and the Road to the Civil War, which came out with Basic Books in 2020. Thank you so much for joining me today, Alice. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much, Steve.